before we get started in our study this morning, I forgot to do this last week, so I want to chat with those who are online. I want to welcome those of you who are online uh, with us this morning and those who will watch after, even after the service is over on Facebook. We also have a, uh, uh, other resources to be able to watch messages as well, of course, on our website. But I just wanted to speak to those online and remind you that although this is a blessing to be able to uh, hear the message of the Word of God uh, via Facebook or online, uh, I want to remind you that the, um, listening to it online is not a replacement for church services. So I want to encourage you, if at all possible, you ought to be either with us or another church worshiping God and enjoying that fellowship and understanding that, that God works among the corporate body of believers. And uh, this is no substitute for being in a corporate body worshiping together with others. So again, just a reminder and encouragement and even an exhortation uh, to uh, consider as soon as possible to be able to be fellowshipping once again with those uh, in a body of believers. Well, with that in mind, uh, this morning we are continuing our study in Matthew chapter 5. And um, we are looking at verses 38 through 42 this morning. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer and then we will uh, jump into the text. Lord, help us as we look at this text this morning and try to place the text in the context. I pray you'll help us not to get distracted by what is often... um, uh, uh, said about this text but uh, by many, but instead we will be able to hear the correct understanding from your word. I pray you will protect me from error in my speaking. I pray you will protect the hearer from hearing error. And I pray that you will draw us close and remind us of the great and important teaching that is happening here. So uh, minister to us and uh, give us soft hearts to receive and realize our need for you. In your name I pray. Amen. This morning's text is an interesting text, verses 38 through 42. It may not strike you as interesting as it is to me this morning, um, but the reason why I find this text interesting is because, I'll be honest with you, uh, if you know me at all, you know that that I have an interest, and I mentioned this previously, I have an interest in self-defense, I have an interest in in, uh, uh, those type of things, I don't want to go any further than that, but Oftentimes, this text, this text has been looked at and oftentimes as the text that people use to argue against self-defense. And, uh, and I want to just, without spending a whole lot of time on the subject, because I really don't want to do that because I don't think that's the point of the text, in, e- in either side, uh, I, want, I just want to say real quickly, um, and again, as briefly as possible, this text is talking about something different than what you think it's talking about, if, if that's some, a subject that's interesting to you. If you are someone who would say that Christians should not practice self-defense, I would argue this text is not saying that what you think it says. If you are someone who believes that self-defense is a biblically acceptable uh, perspective, uh, this text is also equally not addressing that. So I would argue what we've done to the text is a disservice to the text because we're missing the point of the text. And I think the reason why that has happened is because we have spent decades, I would argue, in a lot of circles, even maybe centuries, arguing that this this text is placed in a bigger context of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through telling us how we need to live or what we need to do. 
And the opposite of that then is how we ought not to live and how, what we ought not to do again, correct? And we have, what we've done in Matthew 5-7 through 7 in the uh, Sermon on the Mount is we've created a, a scenario where Matthew 5-7 through 7 is merely a list of legalisms and moralisms, how it, we should live. And we miss the whole point. So I want to remind you, as we've done every week, when we look at Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we must always get back to chapter 4, verse 17. And I'm, I keep bringing this back there every week because of how important it really is. 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So He's calling the people to repent. Why? As we've said before, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And He was preaching that earlier than that. He, he started saying, it started describing uh, that uh, by Matthew that He was preaching the Gospel of heaven. And of course, that doesn't mean there was a different gospel. But he's preaching about himself. Does that make sense? As the Redeemer. As the only good news. Does that make sense so far? So, when we understand that, that twofold statement, he's preaching the gospel of heaven, and he's declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's referencing himself because it's the fullness of time, and he's come to bring the blessing, as we've already seen when we went through verse 3 through 11, or through 12, I'm sorry, that no one was able to be blessed, and so as a result of that, according to Deuteronomy, they could only be cursed. We need to understand that what Jesus is doing all the way through Matthew 5 through 7, I want to remind you again. There are, there are qualifiers that we'll be discovering as we work our way through the text as he begins to transition a bit, appropriately so, is he's generally speaking as he's presenting the bad news of the good news. When I say the bad news of the good news, that may sound really weird to people. How can there be bad news of good news? And the idea is the gospel means good news. But in order for there to be true good news, it must be preceded by bad news. Otherwise, the good news cannot really be seen as the good news it really is. And also, more importantly, if the bad news isn't presented, the good news is not worth much. Is it? If I told you, for example, if I told you I'd like to give you a million dollars, that'd be good news, wouldn't it? But would it not be dependent upon your financial condition? If you're a billionaire, is that really all that great of news? No. That's not great news at all. See, it's all based upon your condition. And we all know that, right? If you're a pauper and I said I'm going to give you a million dollars, that's amazing news, isn't it? If you have $900,000, it's good news. But it's not amazing, earth-shattering news. If you have a billion dollars, it's not good news at all. It's like, okay, whatever. That's chump change. So good news has to be understand in light of the situation in life that the person who is receiving the good news has or finds himself in. Well, according to the Scriptures, everyone's condition in life is what? Condemned. Fit only for judgment and rejection, wrath and hell. And that's exactly the bad news. And that bad news must be understood because the bad news is not understood. The good news really isn't good news. We must, if, if I think I'm a billionaire when really I'm a pauper, is it good news if someone's giving me a million dollars? I'm not going to treat it like good news, am I? If I think I'm a billionaire, I'm going to treat it like, oh, okay, that's cool. 
even if I am a pauper. But if I've deceived myself into thinking I'm a billionaire, it's not really all that good news. So the person telling me he's going to give me a million dollars in order for it to be good news has to tell me first that I'm a what? That I'm a pauper. And he needs to show me that I'm a pauper. And when I see that I'm a pauper, suddenly the thing that before would have been, eh, now it's amazing news. The bad news is absolutely essential, isn't it? It's a different story if we're not really condemned. If we're okay, then it's still good news, right? But it's eh, whatever, because I'm okay. Which means I don't really need a Redeemer. It's cool if there's a Redeemer, but I'm okay without him. Which, by the way, just an aside, I find most people that I talk to that are lost are in that category. You discover that too? Most people think they're okay. And if we don't tell them the bad news of the good news, they're going to continue what? Thinking they're okay. And so the good news is what to them? It's like water off a duck's back, isn't it? Meaningless. Which is why Jesus is spending so much time after declaring that he's calling them to repent, as we've said every week, he's showing them clearly what they need to repent of. We must, as we look through chapter 5-7, through seven, we must see it in that light. And it changes everything. What people do, Now do you understand why, why I addressed the, the self-defense issue real quickly? Because it seems in first reading, and we haven't even looked at it yet, that it's either he's telling you you can't or you can, depending on your, your prejudice of the passage. Especially as you drag other passages into the text. Well, we're not going to look at all those other passages. There's plenty of them, but we're not going to do that because that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to show the people they are desperately in need of a Redeemer. And they're condemned. Let's read the text. And, then, and by the way, before I actually read the text, I want you to understand as well that 38 through 42 is not a complete package by itself. That's the passage we're going to look at this morning. But really it's 38 through the end of the chapter. All the way through to 48. Uh, um, that that the, the, the context makes it pretty clear. It's just flowing together. Um, it just because you know he's talking about the, the subject that we'll see, the eye, eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and then he gives the contrast, right? Love your enemies. You see that? So with that in mind, we're only going to camp on verses 38 through 42 this morning uh, for sake of brevity, so we're not here all day. And then we will, um, we will, Lord willing, get into 43 through 48 next week. So starting in verse 38, Jesus says this in the middle of his message. And you've seen this before, the opening statement. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That's Jesus' teaching as He, as we've seen along uh, every step of the way, He says, for you have heard it was said, and except for one or two exceptions, He's referencing what? The Old Testament law, right? He's referencing the law. And is exactly what He's doing here is He's referencing the Old Testament law. You have, when he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why is he referencing it that way? Because that's what has been taught to them since they were born, basically, the Old Testament law. And this was a really important part, not just of the Old Testament law to the uh, Jewish people of Jesus' day, 
but it was, it was very important and commonly regularly wielded throughout almost every day of Jewish life. It was commonly handled. Why? Because is conflict common between people? It's every day, isn't it? It's every day. I mean, Ken, you, if I may use you as an illustration, Ken, you came in today and you talked about a little minor conflict you had with somebody. Right? I mean, it's the way it is, right? It just happens all the time. Conflict is the stuff of life in a fallen world in fa- with fallen people, isn't it? It happens all the time. And it's what he's addressing here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then he goes on in verse 38. We're going to come back to verse, or verse 39. I mean, we're going to come back to 38 in just a second. But you'll notice in 39, he says, but I say to you, that's familiar, right? That's the judge speaking again. I want to remind you every week when we go through chapter 5, the judge, Jesus, is speaking, but I say to you, and, and the idea is the judge is explaining to the one who is condemned who is standing before the judge. He's explaining to that person his understanding of what the law means and the application of the law and how the law should function. And as we've said in previous weeks, does it matter to the judge what the, the guilty party thinks about the law? Is that relevant in any way? No. The only thing that's relevant is what the judge understands about the law, correct? Correct. In this case, the law, the law judge, the law wielder, is also the law giver, isn't it? So he has even more authority, doesn't he? He's a law giver and he's a law wielder. And so when he says, but I say to you, he is in the only position to interpret and apply the law. And so he says, but I say to you, and then he goes on with this list of things. But before we get to the list of things that he says, and we unpack that, we've got to go back to 38, because 38 is very intriguing to me. If you were to, for sake of time, we're not going to do this, but if you were to go back to the three or four passages in the law where this passage references, you would find something very interesting. There is a laundry list of statements. It's not just these two statements. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, and many, many other statements, okay? From pretty insignificant to ultimately significant. It's a laundry list of that. I see several of you are already turning. Please feel free to do so and you'll see them. Uh, but it is, it is significant, the breadth of the, of the actual statement of the law. But interestingly enough, what Jesus does, and I think purposefully so, Jesus, he singles out, you have heard, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He doesn't choose the lightest ones. He doesn't choose the harshest ones. Death. He doesn't acknowledge those that are even in the law. He chooses these middle of the rotors, which are almost more like down towards the lower end of the list. But not completely all the way down. I mean, losing an eye is important, right? Losing a tooth, not so much. If I knock your tooth out, it hurts, right? Can you live without a tooth? Well, unless it's your last tooth, yeah, you probably can. If it's your last tooth, it may be challenging that day. Now you can eat a lot of gruel or oatmeal, right? But, but it's going to be challenging, isn't it, if you have no teeth. Today we can get dentures. But back in that day, it would be a little more challenging to live without teeth. An eye, you can live without one. 
lose two, it's going to get challenging, isn't it? But they were blind people in Jesus' day. So, he certainly doesn't rush off to the most harsh that are in the Old Testament list. He goes somewhat in the middle of the road and grabs two. Now, some would say, well, he just didn't want to repeat all of them. But you know, there's, there's a literary technique that the Scriptures use, Old and New Testament, that are, is very instructive in, in light of this text. Whenever God wants to give a list but abbreviates the list by only using a couple instead of, let's say there's eight, and, and He only uses two of them, if He wants it to be understood, and this is not just God uh, um, uh, causing man to write the scriptures and write uh, inspired scriptures. It's it's used everywhere. Uh, it always has been. But if if you want to include the entirety of the list, what you do in this case, if you wanted it to be understood that he's talking about the entirety of the list, you would take the lightest one. There's two ways to approach it. You either take the easiest one, and you take the hardest one, and they would act as brackets right? They'd act as brackets, and in so doing, you'd say it includes all of them. Does that make sense? Or you would take the first one, and if, if every statement throughout the Old Testament was exactly the same, say there's four statements, and every one of them listed them exactly the same, you may take the very first one that's listed, and the last one that's listed, regardless if they were lightest to harshest. Either way, you're taking the last to first, and they act as brackets, and it's understood that the brackets include everything in between. Does that make sense? We do that even today. If you talk about a journey you go on, you typically talk about you left here and you arrived then, right? So I left July 3rd and I arrived July 5th. Did anything happen in between July 3rd and 5th? Yeah, now, in light of the context of the discussion, it's going to tell whether I'm really interested that you understand all the others. But you understand it, that statement from July 3rd to July 5th includes, you didn't just magically uh, disappear one place and appear another place, right? Everybody understands that you traveled. And in fact, we take it even further than that, don't we? We automatically put it in. If, if you left July 3rd and you arrived July 5th, he didn't do what? He didn't, how did, what's the one transportation he did not use? He didn't fly. Because it doesn't take two days to fly unless you go someplace really exotic, right? Then maybe. But generally speaking, even those don't take two full days. You either drove or took the train at that point or took a bus. Correct? So we just start filling it in. And it's appropriate to do so. That's why you, you use the, 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 the brackets. Uh, literary speaking, it's called an inclusio. It includes everything. Does that make sense? For example, biblical. If I could give you one quick biblical example of that. Um, in the New Testament, Rahab, I think it's in Hebrews, is mentioned. And when Rahab is mentioned, what is, the story of Rahab is mentioned from the perspective is that it's talking about her faith, and it talks about her faith as evidenced by her bringing the spies into her house, bracket number one, and bracket number two, what do you think, do you remember what it is? Sending them out a different way. Those are brackets. It's the beginning of the story with the spies and the end of the story with the spies. But it embraces the entirety of the story in between the spies arriving and the spies going away. 
That's what, it, that's what it, the brackets do. That's what the inclusio does. So if this text, I, I say that to say, if this text, as Jesus speaks, meant to include for the sake of this discussion, the entirety of it, he would have done what? He would have either taken the first in the list as it stands in the Old Testament and the last in the list, or he would have taken the least and the greatest. Does that make sense? He did not. He, interestingly enough, chose these two, and then he adds a few other things later on to clarify that he's adding more to it. But here he chooses an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, which means if you take my eye, what? You lose, well, not that far yet. We, we, that, 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 that's, that's a miss, even in that day, was, it's what he's going to address. Hold that thought. If, if you take my eye, that ultimately, I'm just going to keep it more generic, ultimately that means that you lose your eye, right? If you take my tooth, ultimately you're going to what? Lose a tooth. You heard it was said that. I'm trying to be as generic as possible because that's exactly what the text says. But when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's going to throw a significant curveball because what you said, Ken, is exactly what the people were doing in that day. In other words, if Ken came to me with a pencil and he's angry with me, or maybe it's completely innocent because he has a pencil with him all the time. Maybe it's innocent even. But in the process, he's just, he's really talking with his hands and the, and the pencil comes flying out of his hand and it, I don't have my glasses on and it hits me in the eye and puts my eye out. That hurts. And my eye's done for. It's popped. It's over. And what would happen in Jesus' day and before, people would say, an eye for an eye. And he'd, I'd come over and I'd grab you and I'd wrestle you to try to get you down so I could do what? Take his eye out. So my eye's out and now he's got to lose an eye. Or he knocks out my tooth, now I have to knock out his tooth. Which is called what? Revenge or retaliation. That makes sense? Revenge or retaliation. Some of your headlines, headings may, uninspired headings may even say retaliation. It may not. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. When Jesus says, but I say to you, as is always, he's saying you misunderstand the law. You absolutely misunderstand the law. And your misunderstanding of the law is causing you to be condemned. Because that's the point. Repent, right? Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You cannot receive your blessing. All you can receive is curse. You need to repent. Here is the evidence you need to repent. Everybody on that hillside outside of Galilee, did they all, are they all walking around with no eyes, missing an eye or missing teeth? No. But what they're doing is they're, Jesus is using an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth because that was the common phrase of the day. They, they didn't say all of them. They just said those two. And they would go ahead because they, they couldn't go to the death thing because it didn't work for them. But instead, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. So you took out my eye. I'm going to take out your eye. I'm going to have retaliation. I'm going to have revenge on you. And he says, in so doing, you missed the whole point. The, the, the point of the law was not for you to have revenge, not for you to retaliate, the point of the law was something much more radical, but yet what you did is what you did every step of the way, which we've seen for, for 37 verses so far, is they twisted the Scriptures to work for them, right? It's not that they necessarily ignored the Scriptures. They were religious people. Did, weren't they? 
They absolutely were. Even in the midst of Malachi, the book of Malachi, when, when they still were bringing sacrifices, were they, twisting, were they bringing sacrifices? Yes, they were sacrificing feverishly. Were they twisting the Scriptures, though? Yes. They were bringing wounded animals, lame animals. They weren't coming with hearts of joy and worship. They were sniffing at it and saying, this is such a duty and such a, such a pain in the neck. But they were still doing it. See, they always twisted the Scripture. They always at least twisted the meaning and purpose for the law. Even at the same time, seemingly to fulfill the law, they were twisting it all the time, and that served to do nothing but condemn them. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, before we move into verse 39, but I say to you more tightly, I just want to make sure and make it really clear to us. Because we don't think that way necessarily, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, although I remember growing up hearing that all the time. And then, of course, I'd hear, turn the other cheek as well. And it always seemed kind of confusing to me because I missed the point. But do we not still have the problem? Let me give you an illustration. If somebody, this is going away from the eye for an eye, it's going even lighter. But just by way of illustration, if somebody says something really derogatory to us, what's our natural tendency to do? To give it back to them. Isn't that the natural tendency? And does that not happen quite often for all of us? Even if it doesn't actually come out of our mouth, is it not in our hearts? Isn't it? Now, we know better as good Christians not to let it get to our mouth most time, right? But we do what with it? We just let it fester, don't we? And you know what we're doing? We're doing what, what Paul Tripp calls bloodless murders. Does that make sense? Which is why this connects with the next section so well. We're hating the person. We're thinking all sorts of derogatory thoughts about the person. And we're even framing it as if we're victorious in the process. Don't we? Eye for an eye. They were derogatory with me. I'll be derogatory with them. Right? And it's pure and simply retaliation and vengeance. And the idea is overwhelming vengeance. I just want them to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Happens all the time. I'm just using that as an illustration. We can go many different directions. But it happens all the time. <clears throat> and oftentimes it accelerates, doesn't it? Especially when it starts coming out of our mouth. It starts out with, with verbal lashings, verbal attacks, and the other person starts verbal attack, attacks, and what happens next? So, somebody starts throwing fists, right? Somebody starts throwing fists. If you don't believe it, just go on YouTube. It's everywhere on YouTube. It's constant. It's celebrated. It's everywhere. And when you talk to the people, they say, well, he deserved it. He started it. My goodness, we're starting to sound like we're kids now. Right? I mean, none, none of us, but we've heard other people when they were kids say those things. Right? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and he goes on and says, do not resist the one who is evil. Who is the evil one? The one who is doing what? Who, let me change my words. Who is the evil one? The one who has poked out my eye. The one who has broken my tooth. The one who has lashed at me verbally. Whatever the case may be. 
from the perspective of retaliation or vengeance. They must what? Pay. They must pay for what they have done. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. And the idea is the one who is doing evil. Don't. He's not, some people have actually taken that statement to refer to, to, to Satan. It's like, what? No, it's talking about the one who, who went after you. The person who went after you. Do not resist the one who is evil. Instead, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is where it gets really interesting because in the Old Testament law, the idea is, that, and this is why this, this text becomes very interesting, the idea is if someone pokes you in the eye and puts your eye out, breaks your tooth out, the, the idea in the Old Testament law was it's supposed to go to the magistrate or the judge. And he's supposed to examine the facts, this should be familiar to us, examine the facts, make a determination, and decide what the consequences are going to be. Does that make sense? That's how God set it up in the Old Testament law. That's what's supposed to happen. My task is not to, not to bring vengeance upon that person or retaliate against that person. And interestingly enough, there were even exceptions to that but that was more primarily with regard to murder than first, what we would call today first-degree murder or third-degree murder. Um, but that's a whole other issue that we're not going to talk about right now. But he says here, but I say to you, to you, do not resist the one who is doing evil, who, or better put, has done evil and who is an evil person. So the assumption is that this was not innocent. It was actually purposeful and aggressive and evil. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, he says something interesting though, because then, then he changes it to something even less significant. He doesn't ratchet it up. He brings it down lower. Notice what he says. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That sounds even less significant. It certainly is less significant and less, less costly if somebody pokes your eye out, right? In comparison to slapping. I mean, sla- poking an eye out, that's kind, of, that's kind of high cost, isn't it? Knocking a tooth, not as high a cost, but a lot higher than getting slapped. Isn't it? Of course it is. Getting slapped is pretty insignificant compared to losing an eye or losing a tooth. So he brings it down to a lower level, not an upper level. He brings it down to a lower level and says, uh, basically, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, which is interesting, he chooses the right cheek because when you figure that probably 80 to 90% of all people are what-handed? Right-handed, you'd expect them to be slapping you on your left cheek but they're using their hand to backhand you. That's the point. That, which makes no sense to us today. It, it does exempt me. Um, but, but the idea is, there I go with my left hand. If I slapped you with a backhanded slap, it was more derogatory than if I slapped you fa- to the palm. It was pictured as a more derogatory thing. To us today, that's, that's, you hit me with the backhand, front hand, it's a slap. In that day, it was even more derogatory to be backhanded than to be front-handed or palm-handed. It's kind of like if somebody threw a shoe at me today, it'd be like they threw a shoe at me. If you're in the Middle East and they threw a shoe at you, that is very, very derogatory. That is very humiliating and very derogatory. So it's a cultural thing. Backhand, very, very insulting. Forehand, it's just a slap. Backhand derogatory. So he's really dialing in on this idea, still less than losing an eye or losing a tooth, but he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn the other one also. What is he talking about? Is he saying you should be a pacifist? No, because remember what we said. He's not trying to show them how they ought to live. He's trying to show them what? That they haven't been living rightly. What is he talking about? He's trying to show them in light of the idea that the law told them in reality to go to the courts, not to, not to be uh, retaliatory or, or to, to uh, mete out vengeance. He's saying, and by the way, you'd never take a slap court. That's not a court case issue. That's humiliating somebody and being very, very insulting to somebody. But this was some slapping in that day and putting someone down verbally today. It's just a lot more efficient. That's what it is. A lot more efficient and, and it's done and over with. And so what Jesus says, in effect, he's saying, if someone's insulting to you, what should you do? Let them do it. And do it again. Right? Because he says, turn the other cheek. Correct? If someone's being really insulting to you, derogatory to you, his point is, what, what is our natural tendency? Thinking about slapping, backhanded slapping, as being derogatory in our culture, which would be more verbal, right? And insulting. The natural way of man is to do what? When someone's insulting and derogatory to you, it is to be derogatory and insulting back. Oh, yeah, well. And we never ultimately really leave junior high, do we? We really don't. We get more skillful at it, more subtle at it, but we never really leave uh, junior high. And we all know it. And what Jesus says here, if someone's being insulting and derogatory to you, you should do what? Turn the other cheek. I I love what Spurgeon said. This was later in his life. And he said, you know, I've come to the point where I've realized, I don't know if he got that from this text or where he got it from, but he said, I've come to realize something that has radically changed my thinking. He says, when people insult me or when they accuse me falsely, which is an insult, right? When they uh, insult me or accuse me falsely, I've come to realize that there's nothing I can say and I just let it go and I'm not offended by it anymore. And he said, you know why? The reason why is because there's something I know about myself. And what I know about myself is that I'm a whole lot worse than anything they could possibly know about me. So whatever they said about me, whether it's true or false, I know that I'm a whole lot worse than that. Isn't that an interesting perspective? You know what that is? That's a turn the other cheek, isn't it? Now, the point, again, isn't that Jesus is telling, listen, from here on out, this is what you need to live, right? Because the point is he's calling to repentance. So even though it sounds like he's saying, I'm telling you, like we've seen every step of the way, you ought to be like this, he's saying that from the perspective of showing them that they've never been like that. Have they? And Now, we didn't live back then, but you know it, don't you? All you got to do is examine your own life, and you know that you're not any different from the people next to you. You're not any different from the people that you know at work. You're no different from the people that are in your family, in your extended family. You're no different from your neighbors. You're no no different from the people you recreate with. And we all know it. 
And a simple matter of fact is, I say to, uh, as myself as an example, I'm 62 years old. You know what that means? For 62 years, you know it's what I have in the wake of my life? I have a whole lot of not turning the other cheek. You know that? I have a whole lot of not turning the other cheek. As a matter of fact, I, have, I, didn't, I, I can't, oftentimes I can't even see the turning of the cheek in my, in my purview in those situations. You know what I see? To use the illustration we, that Jesus gives, I see a whole lot of backhand flying from me to the other person. You know that? If you read the text and think about what Jesus is saying, based upon the statement you say, you have heard from old, what? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But you've missed the whole point. And all your life you've been doing what? And you can't even help it. You've been, metaphorically speaking, popping out people's eyes, breaking out teeth, backhanded slapping, and you thought you were what? Justified in doing it. Why? Because they did it to you. Does that make sense? I want to make sure that we understand this is exactly what he's trying to get across is this is what you've done. This is how you've lived. This is how you've thought. Every step of the way, you have lived this way. Rather than turning the other cheek, which is the biblical truth, because we can't keep the law, right? This is a great example of how we can't keep the law. My goodness, I can't tell you how many times in my life somebody has metaphorically backhanded me. It's most times in our culture verbal, right? But they've backhanded me. And I don't even have to think about it. The backhand just comes natural, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, it just comes natural. It's just there, isn't it? Now, we may not say it. We may be able to control ourselves because you know it dishonors God to say those things, right? But it's there. And it's just as sinful here. It's sinful here first, isn't it? What comes out is just because it's sinful here. And if it doesn't come out, it's still sinful here. Whether we backhand in our hearts and minds or whether we backhand with our words, it's still sinful. And what Jesus is trying to get across is it's time to repent. You lost the blessing. Right? You lost the blessing. It's come out and come out and come out. And sometimes you didn't let it come out, but it was there. It was there because you're hardwired for it. No one escapes disobedience to the law. God created the law in such a way because He's holy and we're not. We have no hope of keeping it. Even something simple like this. I mean, it's getting pretty simple now, isn't it? We have no hope. And then He takes it one step further. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you, now we're in court, right? Sue you for some reason. Right? And he wins the suit. It says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, now I want you to understand what this means. When he says, and take your tunic, he's suing you for your tunic as payment. Got it? The tunic is not the outer coat. It's the inner clothing. 
and the implication being something along the lines of someone borrowed money from someone else and didn't pay it back. And so he takes them to court and he sues them and he gets the judge to say, yes, that person owes you, but the implication is the person doesn't have money. Why else would he take his tunic? He doesn't have any money. And so the judge makes a ruling that you give your tunic. The tunic, again, is the inner clothing. Make sense so far? So you give the inner tunic to that person. The judge would take it away from you. <clears throat> and the natural question, why, why the inner tunic? Why not the coat, the outer clothing? Well, the Scriptures would not allow that. In the Old Testament, you could not take someone's outer coat away. And the reason why that is, is because if you're taking clothing away from someone, they're, they're pretty much in poverty. And so if they're pretty much in poverty and you take their coat, you're putting them in a situation that they could die. Because in the Middle East, especially in Israel, even in the summertime, it is oftentimes relatively cool at night. In the winter, it's a lot like we have here. Like at night around here, it's usually pretty comfortable still at night, isn't it? I mean, you may get down, like two days ago, it was, or no, yesterday it was down to 57 degrees, which is really cold for this time of year at night, isn't it? That's pretty cold for this time of year. That's nothing in the Middle East <clears throat> before the sun rises. So the, two, the, the cloak or the outer coat would be something that the poor person, when they laid down outside because they didn't have a place to live, they would use the coat to keep them warm the outer coat. So the law stated you couldn't take their coat. So the only other thing they had if they're poverty stricken is what? Their inner tunic, which is a finer material, comfortable against the skin. And so the, the judge would sometimes say you take their tunic. So they had to surrender their tunic. What does it say in verse 40? If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your what? your coat or your cloak as well. In other words, what is he doing there? He is totally reversing the understanding. What is it? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what he's saying, no, really biblically what you should do from God's standard, what you should do is what? If they ask for your tunic, when they say, no, you've got to surrender your tunic, you ought to go beyond now, why would Jesus say that? This is where it gets interesting. Why would Jesus say that? Do you, sent, do you hear the illusion there? Let me give you the, the illusion. When Jesus went to the cross, what did the people want to do? When they arrested him, what did the people want to happen to Jesus? They wanted him crucified, right? They wanted him dead. They wanted him crucified. Was Jesus crucified? Yes. Did he go beyond crucifixion? Yes. He didn't just get crucified. He did what? He took on their wrath, didn't he? He took on the wrath that belonged to them. He wore the wrath that, was belonged, to, that belonged to each one of those people, didn't he? And, and you and I. Did he not? Did he go beyond their demands? He absolutely did. He went far beyond their demands. And not only that, then he put us in his place and he did what? He gave us his coat of righteousness, didn't he? So to speak. Do you sense the connection there? We're enemies. He clothes us. Do you get it? 
I mean, the illusion here is phenomenal. Does anybody do that? This is the fulfillment of the law because Christ is the fulfillment of the law, right? The only hope for mankind is that somebody else would wear their coat. Right? Wrath. And then their only hope is that person would give them his coat, as it were. And he says to them in this case, this is what righteousness looks like. What's going to happen to the person who is impoverished, absolutely impoverished, all they have to their name is a tunic and a coat on a cold winter night. If their, cloak, if their, if their tunic is taken away and they give their cloak up too, what's going to happen to that person? They're going to freeze to death. Let's cut to the chase. They're going to freeze to death. They're going to die. And that's the righteousness that God's standards declares. That's the righteousness that God's, and that, that's not a righteousness that anyone would ever do. If, if it was a cold winter day and a judge says you've got to give your tunic to this guy, no one in their right mind would say, I will die for that person. Right? And give them my coat. But that's God's standard. And what is he saying there then? He's saying you haven't measured up to the righteousness you must measure up to. Because no one would ever do that. What does it look like in court if a judge says we're going to require your tunic? What is the person going to do most likely? He's going to argue how destitute he is. He's going to argue that there needs to be some sort of mitigation so he doesn't have to give up his tunic. Because although I'll survive through a cold night, it's going to be very uncomfortable. Does that make sense? If you've ever been in a court case, you know that's the case. They always do what? They spend most of their time arguing for a mitigation of the penalty. Nobody ever says, I'm going to take it to a different level and a greater, greater penalty. Nobody does that. But that's God's standard. And then he goes on, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That anyone being referenced is not anyone as you think it to be. The anyone he's referencing in that day would have been the Roman soldiers or Roman government. The Roman government was notorious, especially the soldiers, of going up to a Jew. If they were on a journey somewhere and go up to a Jew and say, you need to carry my backpack or my armament or whatever the case may be for the next mile. Why? Because their stuff was heavy. And the Roman law allowed them to, to demand that their subjugated people could go for one mile and carry their stuff. And it could happen at any time and no matter how greatly you are inconvenienced, it was irrelevant. And going a mile doesn't sound like a whole lot today. I mean, average Brisk walk today is 20 minutes per mile. If you're a fast walker, 15, 14 maybe if you're really fast. If you can run, maybe get it down to 7 if you're really good. Carrying armor, probably not. Carrying armor today, take that 20 minutes, or if, yeah, 20 minutes up to probably 35, 40. In that day, it'd probably take an hour to walk a mile because the roads are so rough. 
So an hour there, an hour back. Minimum. That's absolute minimum. That's if middle of harvest, cooking dinner for your family, you got a really important appointment to close on land that you were buying, a farm you were buying, didn't matter how inconvenienced you were. If they said, walk a mile carrying my stuff, you walked a mile carrying their stuff. And Jesus says what? If anyone forces you to walk one mile, go with him what? Two, which means four miles, doesn't it? Because two miles back. Now you're talking about at least, at minimum, a half a day. At minimum. Now you can move faster on the way back, but at minimum you're talking a half a day. That's complicating, isn't it? Isn't it? And so what would you do the whole time? You'd do everything you possibly can to avoid it, right? And you'd fight it and grumble and get aggravated and sin all over the place in the process, wouldn't you? Does that make sense? Why is Jesus telling this this way? Because he's trying to show them how much they have failed and how much they need a redeemer. I mean, I wouldn't even think about, oh, he wanted me to go a mile, I'm going to go two. I would think what? I'm going to try to deceive him to think that half a mile is a mile. Right? Or I'm going to just say no and try to run away because he's got all that armor. Certainly he can't catch me. He's got armor. I don't. Maybe I can get away. Or maybe go slow enough. So he, I didn't think about that. Go slow enough so maybe you fake like you're injured, right? And, 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 and so maybe you'll pick somebody else. Yeah, exactly. The point is, nobody thinks this way, do they? Nobody thinks this way. What do we think about when these kind of difficulties come into our life? Inevitably, we think about who? Ourselves. And our being inconvenienced. And the difficulty of it all. And how hard it is. And how much I hate the Romans. Correct? And all that is just festering sin, isn't it? Just festering sin. And then verse 42. Give the one who begs from you. You know what? The other day, I was over it. It was... That was over a week ago now. I was over, it was one of those days, it was like 97, 98 degrees, and I was over at the Giant in Exeter. And there was a girl standing out in the parking lot, right on the edge where the parking area and the road right in front of the stores are, and she was playing a violin. And she had a sign out saying that, that she needed money. And she's playing away, and I mean, she played well. But it, the sign talked about her husband lost his job, she lost her job, and she has kids. Now, there's no kids there, and there's no husband there, so I don't know where they were. But you know what my mind immediately started doing? Guess where my mind went? Anybody can guess? Doubting her, thinking she's just trying to rip people off. Uh, where's your husband? Where's your kids? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's probably got a Mercedes. She's probably living higher in the hog than I am, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, at first my heart kind of went out for her because it's 97 degrees, although she was under this small little tree. But, I mean, she was sweating bullets. She was really good, by the way, player. But my, my first thought is, yeah, right. What a scammer. 
my second thought was, I'm sure Giants hiring or Lowe's is hiring or Target's hiring. I started listing all, in my mind all the, I didn't say anything to her, but all the different stores in the, in the strip mall. I'm like, they got to be hiring. They got to be hiring. They gotta be, you got to be, I mean, I doubt you're making 15 bucks an hour doing this. Maybe she was. I don't know. I didn't look in her bucket. And I walked by. And I walked in the giant, bought my stuff, and she was still out there. And I walked by her again. And you know what I was saying in my heart? The same thing. The exact same thing. And two days later, I was like, ugh. Now, I know none of you guys ever do this, right? You guys never do that. You guys are like, you guys probably, when you see someone like that, you probably just take your whole wallet out and just throw it in, don't you? Is that what you do? Yeah, your whole wallet. Of course, your wallet's empty, right? <laughs> but you get my point. I mean, that's how we are, aren't we? Our immediate thought is what? Scammer. What's that? Yeah, it's just total scam. And you walk by him. And then I'm starting to think of, I mean, it was like two days later, I'm starting to think of this. This passage starts hitting me, and all of a sudden the Good Samaritan story hits me, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need a Redeemer. My goodness, do I need a Redeemer. Even something little like that. Oh my goodness, do I need Jesus. See, I typically think how much I need Jesus when I lie. I think how much I need Jesus when I repent of hating someone. Right? I don't think about how much I need Jesus in this type of category. But I do. And here it was, this girl that I didn't give any money to. She, she was just hollering out for money. Her sign was hollering out for money, but you know what her sign was really saying? I need to repent. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. That's what it says, you know, and, and the point is, again, I don't, it's not that I need to give money to every single poor person I meet. The point is, or any person that begs, the point is it's showing me what? It's showing me my heart. That's the issue here. See, we want to make this into something I've got to do, and it's not, it's not about that. It's about showing me my heart. That's the point. goes on, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This, he just changed from someone who's begging, in other words, you're giving, right? I, if, I, if I would toss money in her bucket, would I ever expect to get any of that back? Of course not. I didn't, it was never in my mind if I put money in the bucket. It was never in my mind to get anything back from her, right? No, of course not. I would never see her again. But he, he, he changes it then at the end of 42 and says, do not refuse one who would borrow from you. If someone comes and says, hey, loan me money, what does Jesus say? Give it to him. Now, we look at that and we miss the whole point. This is, for us, isn't, isn't painful. For those in Jesus' day, for Jews in Jesus' day, this is incredibly painful. Because in Jesus, not just in Jesus' day, but from the Old Testament law, there was a thing called uh, um, 
uh, oh, my mind just pulled a blank on the name of it. But every seven years, you remember the name? Is it the year of Jubilee? I, that, yeah. Every debt would be forgiven. I was thinking year of Jubilee, but I was thinking, is that 50 or is that seven? I'm pulling a blank on it. But there was a 50-year one, there's a seven-year one. But the idea is every seven years, you were to forgive the debt of everyone who owes you money, no matter how much you were owed. It was forgiven. But the caveat to that is this. Because in, in, in your natural mind, you would say what? I'm only going to loan money to people with a shorter return time than when all debts are forgiven, right? So if it's seven years left, I'm going to make a six-year loan to someone, right? Does that make sense? Make a six-year loan. And by the way, there was, if you're loaning to another Jew, you could not charge interest, which complicates it even more. So if Charles came to me and said, hey, I had a fire in my house, which would never happen, right, Charles? And he came to me and he says, hey, I, is there any chance you could loan me, is there any chance I could borrow $30,000 from you? And let's just pretend for sake of discussion that I had $30,000 that I could loan. And he says, I will pay you back. The first thought in my mind is going to be what? When is that day, when is that year coming where all debts are erased? Correct? And so I look at that and say, wow, in four years, that debt is erased. So, Charles, I'll tell you what. I'll loan it to you if you can pay it back in three and a half years. And Charles says, I can't do that. There's no way I can get it back in three and a half years. Or maybe he says, sure, no problem. Either way, let me work off the one. He says, there's no way. I, I can't pay it off by then. And so my natural inclination is to say what? Nope. Not going to do it. Because I say to him, so how long would it take you? He said, at my current income, it'd probably take me at least 10 years. Which tells me what? I'm going to only see at best what? About half of it, right? So I'm losing my shirt, aren't I? I'm going to lose my shirt on this deal. You know, you know what God says in the Scriptures? Loan it to him. Yeah, yeah, loan it to them. That's what it says. Loan it to them. Oh, if Charles comes to me the day before, for sake of illustration, January 31st, and I'm sorry, December 31st and January 1st is the day of Jubilee, or the year of Jubilee, and all debts are canceled, and he's a legitimate needs to borrow money for whatever reason. I can't even think of a reason why that would be legitimate, but you get the idea. New Year's Eve party, yeah. God tells us in, in, in Deuteronomy to loan it to him. In, in essence, that means what? I'm not getting anything back. Now, he could choose to if he wanted to still, right? If I loaned him $30,000 on December 31st, he could choose to pay it back over the next two, 10 years if he wanted to, right? It doesn't preclude him from paying it back, but he is no longer required to pay it back, and the ledger is wiped clean. I can never hold him accountable for that again. Now, the point of the Scriptures is not the legal requirement. The point of the Scriptures is what? It's the heart. 
Now, does that sound now kind of painful and kind of foreign? Just a little bit? Doesn't it? But from God's perspective, that's how community works. That's how biblical, Old Testament, covenant community works. Why? Because this is to be a reflection. Because ultimately, almost all loans will never get fully paid. Except for small ones. The point of the story is to do what? Why do you think God had that established? To show the people that our debt is too great, we could never pay it back. It's supposed to be a living example before us all the time. It could never, our debt could never possibly be paid back. It just couldn't. And so ultimately, it always ends up being mercy. And yet in Jesus' day, as in every day, the point was, I'm not going to loan it to you unless what? You can and will pay it back. And I build in all sorts of things to make sure you pay it back. Right? And Jesus says, no. If they come, and it's interesting, he does not say, don't refuse them unless they have really bad credit. Doesn't say that, does it? If the, guy is, if the guy is as corrupt as day is long, but he's a Jew, and he comes and asks, asks to loan you money, a fellow Jew, a fellow, fellow covenant community person, and he asks to, to you know, give him money, to loan him money, loan it to him. And when you don't get paid back, it is a lesson for all of us to learn about God's great love for us and His amazing mercy. And yet, what do all people do at all times? Just the opposite. 100% the opposite. What's the point of the text? The point of the text is Jesus is trying to get across is retaliation. Revenge isn't the place because that's not what God does, does He? Is retaliation what God does? No. What does God do? He shows mercy. Now, there is judgment because He's a judge, Right? But God isn't about retaliation or revenge. We should not as well if the holy God isn't. Who, what, what right do we as unholy man have the right to enact revenge? Because what is revenge ultimately? What is retaliation ultimately? In its very essence, it means that I am righteous and you are unrighteous. Is that a lie or is that truth? Even if in the individual situation you find yourself in, I didn't deserve to lose my eye. I have not done anything sinful to lose my eye. And Ken poked my eye out. Am I a righteous person? No. I am not. And it evidenced itself pretty quickly, didn't it? Almost immediate. Whether it's just in my heart or heart and external, it evidenced it immediately. I need a redeemer. I need one who, like the lamb before her, his shears was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Sounds like turning the cheek, doesn't it? The one who is absolutely righteous in every way at every time, who never sinned, 
stood before a judge, even though he is the judge, he stood before a judge and was condemned unjustly, unrighteously condemned. And as the completely holy, righteous God, he took on my sin and yours and went to the tree. And that's what's needed. That's the only righteousness that is accepted by the Father. The text is calling unbelievers and believers to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The righteous one is at hand. The only one who in the very essence of who he was turned the other cheek. The only one who rather than demanding an eye for an eye, he absorbed the wrath instead even though we all deserve not just to lose an eye or a tooth, we deserve to lose our very lives in hell for eternity. And he absorbed that for us. The text becomes stunning when you start to think about it this way. The call is to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How much more so for true believers to repent and trust Jesus, our Redeemer, our Messiah, who has stood in our place. Oh, that we would be reminded. It's not about we need to do better. It's about He did. And if I may close on this, after He gets done with the bad news, now, they, he'll keep popping the bad news up. But after he gets done with this corpus of bad news, from here on out, after Matthew 7 especially, he's going to start presenting himself as the answer to the, to the dilemma. He is the only answer. Because they have nothing coming to them but wrath. Because of all this. They have never once lived according to this standard. Nor have we. Never once. And when we understand that God's standard is absolute perfection throughout the entirety of our life, even if we somehow were able to occasionally measure up to the standard, which we are not, but even if we were occasionally to be able to stand, stand up to that, that standard, God never said, my goal for you, my plan for you to be redeemed is to occasionally reach absolute perfection. That's not his statement. That's not his, sta that's not his standard. He, that standard would exist only if God himself was occasionally absolutely perfect. Absolutely holy. That's why God says, be holy as I am holy. Doomed. Doomed. And we've, even that passage, we corrupt that to mean what? i got to try harder to be holy. Really? <laughs> be holy for I am holy. Or be holy as I am holy. It means the same thing. I'm doomed. I can't. I just can't. I can't do this. Even just 38 through 42, I can't do it. 
let alone the entirety of the text. I can't accomplish it. It does me no good to do it a bit. To do it to the best of my ability. To try real hard. It does no good. I'm either one who is wearing Christ's righteousness or I am doomed. I have no other hope. Now certainly when He shines His righteousness upon me and gives me His righteousness and shines His love upon me and loves me, the response is I begin fitfully because He gives me a new heart. I begin in basic ways, fitful, imperfect ways, always imperfect ways to begin to reflect that love by following what He says and appropriately so. But it's not because God told me I have to do it. It's because I am a recipient of His love. I want to love the One who first loved me because the Spirit is at work in me. Changed me, changing me for His glory. But all that does nothing to save me or to put me in a better standing before God. I either have His righteousness and am blessed, or I do not have his righteousness, and I am condemned to an eternity of wrath. It is our only hope. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we quickly and easily and have long been taught, whether it's through books or messages or seminars, and even our own sinful hearts have taught us, this idea of we got to do better, we got to try harder, we got to do better, we got to try harder, we got to do more things, we got to we got to follow the the teachings more closely. Lord, we need you. Period. We need you for our justification, but we also need you for our sanctification. Our works at best are paltry and always corrupted with sin. We need Christ's righteousness. It is our only hope. He is our only hope. So help us to find satisfaction and joy in Christ alone. For your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?